So what I try to promote is a system in place, it's 12 steps. Cause you know, there's only that, how many people are right for a job? You know, 10, 15 people. If they know you want to talk to them, they'll respond to you. You have to make them feel like it's you that I really want to talk to. All right, welcome to the Resilient Recruiter podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by Alan Cutter. Alan is the founder and CEO of AC Lion, a Forbes-rated best recruiting firm in America, four years in a row. With 13 employees and offices in New York, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Israel, AC Lion focuses on digital talent and builds leadership teams for growing companies from venture-backed startups to enterprise-level organizations. In addition to its core practice, Alan founded a recruitment innovation lab and investment arm, AC Lion Venture Partners, to invest in paradigm-shifting companies, including blockchain, autonomous, IoT, artificial intelligence, and mobile-first technology. Alan's a huge believer in life-work balance, relocating his wife and four kids to Israel two and a half years ago. He volunteers for numerous community charities. He's an avid surfer and mountain biker. Alan, thanks for being here. Hey, my pleasure, Mark. I'm super excited to be on the program and uh, listen to your podcast for the past two weeks, mostly while I was mountain biking. So uh, I loved to hear so many smart people around the room talking about recruiting and I'm glad that you're doing this for, for the community. Oh, well, thank you so much, Alan. I, pr- I really appreciate that. Um, so listen, how did you end up in Israel? Because you started the business in New York, I think. Yeah, no, I'm in I'm in New York City. Yeah. Been in New York City for, you know, past. I, I was mostly I grew up in Boston. Actually, right. before that, even in Ohio, I was an Ohio guy. First eight and a half years in Boston, then uh, college in New York, and then uh, a recruitment firm for the first four years, and then I started my own company. Um, and then uh, two and a half years ago, um, it was something I've always wanted to do. You know, people have. Uh, a bucket list of things that, that are things that are important to them. Well, moving to Israel was one of those things. Amazing. And um, this is actually a really interesting topic in a couple of aspects. One is, you know, you fulfilling a personal ambition and uh, blending that with your business growth. And because um, a lot of companies try and expand internationally based in another country and there's pros and cons to doing that, but you've actually gone to another location in order to set up shop, which is, which is cool. I'd like to learn more about that. Um, but also the whole idea of having remote offices, you were, you did that pre pandemic, obviously. And, uh, I feel like that could have been an advantage in some ways, but um, let's dig into that. Like you started in the business in, was it 97? Yeah. Yeah. May 1997. Well, no, I started my company in May 1997. Uh, okay. I started recruiting in 1993. Got it. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> I started my recruiting career in 1997. So wow. you've got a few years on me. But not um, many though, but, but an, important four, an important four years because when you started, people actually used computers. <laughs> yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, sort of. Pre, you were pre-index cards or did you actually have index we cards? We had when both. You we had the computer, uh, but it was a dumb terminal. We d- I had no internet, like outside right. connection to the internet. Well, the, wow. Um, See, that's something that I was, I, one of the things I'm proud of, I was all, we were always ahead of the game. So by 1997, 
we got the internet in my old company in like 1995. Oh, brilliant. Wow. You guys. And that's really, that's really part of my story, you know, and uh, always ahead of technology. And uh, so we, you know, we used to run ads in the New York times, www.otech.com. So people would open up the New York times to read for job posting for job ads, but then we would divert them to the internet. <laughs> awesome. So wow. people would apply online. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, that was way ahead uh, of your time. So how, like, just can you paint a, a, a picture for me of the company history then, like how it sort of evolved over the last 24 years? Sure. I mean, I started in recruiting engineers mm-hmm. uh, in 1993 for a company called Otech. We were, you know, an eight-person company at the time. And when I left, we were 60 people. So we... Wow. It was in tremendous growth. Um, we were the founders of hotjobs.com, which was really the first internet job board. Oh, cool. um, so the company was split between, you know, traditional recruiters and the job board people. Yeah. We gave, we gave, we gave it away for free. Um, they offered for me to be number two, which is essentially running hotjobs.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, the offer was $25,000 base salary. And I had to give up my desk. <laughs> which was four recruiters at the time. Uh, I was making, you know, really good money for, you know, for someone who was like 26, 27 years old. And I said, I'm not giving up my desk, but I want to do this because, you know, I was one of the founding members of the, of the company. There was no equity because no one really understood equity at the time. We were a bunch of recruiters. So, and I said, you know, let me start hotjobsisrael.com, you know, and, and instead of like sort of focusing on like, the current business model, which I thought was great. I was already like two steps ahead. So I sent a proposal into them for Hot Jobs Israel, which is essentially like bringing people to Israel for technology jobs. And, you know, and they agreed to the proposal. Then there were these terrorist attacks in Israel and they said, forget it, we're not sending you there. It's too dangerous. And um, after they gave me the offer of basically, you know, 25K or nothing, I decided that that wasn't enough for me and I left and I started the company with a, with, with a partner, uh, 50-50, had no recruiting experience whatsoever, just somebody that I met in my community, and but he had a lot of grit and uh, he sold, uh, he was a trader of baseball cards <laughs> and uh, we started the, the business in, a, in my apartment for the first two weeks. Uh, he introduced me to one investor who gave me $30,000. I gave him 30% of the business, not, uh, not equity. I just said, uh, profit share. He was fine with that. And within six months I had all his money back and, and I started giving him his percentage. We did that for about a year. I was in uh, 245 park Avenue in the Helmsley building overlooking New York city. Could not get better than that. But I was always like pushing for more technology and always had that hot jobs Israel thing in my mind that I wanted to run and my partner was going to run the traditional recruiting piece. And, um, after a year, like the, the investor said, you know, this is, this is too much. You guys are like way ahead of the time. He was placing accountants. We parted ways. I found an office space on 35th street and, um, I built the company from 97 to about 2001. I opened up a, a book called the New York new media association book it was a bunch of little startup companies like Google and Facebook and 24-7 media. And I'm like, hey, I'm young, you're young. I have engineers, you know, and I loved working with founders. And those companies became massive, double click. I mean, you name the tech company, we were replacing the, the engineers. And that bug to this day has never left me. I always 
want to help startup founders at the earliest stage building out their teams. So that's the origination of the company. Amazing, Alan. So why early stage founders? What is it that attracts you about that particular market? It's a couple of things. Um, we all know what it's like or what it used to be like to work with sort of like the, the, the recruiters, the, the internal recruiters, or the people that sort of the gatekeepers, as people used to call them. And, you know, they didn't really treat you like a partner, you know, then in those days at least. And the founders really appreciated what you could do for them. You know, they had a burning need. You were able to fulfill it, number one. And number two, I always had a keen interest in business. I believe that we have to hire people that have intellectual curiosity. Yes. So, you know, when I go to a cocktail party, I can talk to every single person in that room about what they do. And they think I know their business really well. Right. And that's, that's like, cool. you know what I'm saying? Like, they're like, you know, it's Jack of all chase, master of none, you know, that whole famous saying, but like, that's me, you know, I'm literally like Jack of all trades, but I get excited when someone says, this is what I do. And I can totally guess what they make, where, you know, what level they're at, like who's their boss and all that stuff. So when I talk to a founder, I can help them understand what it is that they need and not just from a, from a talent perspective, but actually from a business perspective. And then I didn't really know, honestly, at the time I probably came from self sense of insecurity because I had come from a company that had worked with like Goldman Sachs and this was just boring. And I just, thought that they'd hire me because I was young and they were young. That's how it started. But now it's a complete passion of mine. And to this day, if you look at our clientele, like they're all early stage companies that some of them have made it. Some of them are massive now and some of them are not. And it's exciting to me. I totally get that. And by the way, you can always spot the recruiter in the cocktail party because he's interviewing everybody. Right. Right. Um, And uh, so, yeah, there's something about the ability to re- truly make an impact. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing placing talent and that's always gratifying uh, at some level, but where you know that the people you're placing are going to have a massive impact on the trajectory of, uh, of a business and where the other thing about founders is they think big and they're, uh, you know, open to fresh ideas, right? And to, you know, th- they don't have that bureaucracy or institutional mindset yet. And so I feel like, you know, it's much easier to cons- truly consult with them. Uh, but also the old, you know, adage in recruiting success about urgency, urgency, urgency. And if there's enormous pressure on them to to grow, then you know, it's almost like a recruiter's dream. There must be downsides too, though, right? Like what are the there dis- are? There are. Let me just, I'll give, it, give you a quick story because it happened yesterday. Yeah. And I love the fact that I can tell a story about what is so gratifying about recruiting 24 years later, you know, based on this exact subject. So just yesterday, I'm on the phone with, with a client who's a CEO of a company and I'm dealing with um, their their head of people, who, by the way, is amazing. And now I've changed my philosophy on head of people. I think they're very consultative right now, and they understand the value of a, of a recruiter and their partners, how they partner with you. She was on the phone, and and they needed a um, you know a head of marketing, and um, but they they were trying to get it all up in in one bundle. And here they are, an Israeli company 
focusing on the United States. I'm in Israel, you know, but my team's in New York. So he feels totally connected to me because I understand what they're going through where I used to not, nobody can. And they need someone who's in the United States, but who feels that the team and the engineering team and the product team, but they need to take that message out in the marketplace yeah. and they need to go raise money. And he's, he's, he's being honest with me. He's like, I need to raise that next round of financing. I need someone who's going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm Israeli. I can barely speak English, right? I need the face of the company. Can I find a face of the company that also knows how to market, also knows how to do social media, also knows how to do PR, um, you know, that, that can like do that all for like, you know, $150,000. And I'm like, no, <laughs> this is what you need to do. And I'm literally telling him what he should do, what they should pay the person, what the title should be, what are his I'm listening to his priorities and I'm telling him, listen, based on what you said, I think you can get one and two, but you're probably not going to get three, the three you need to outsource. Mm -hmm. And he was like, this is incredible advice, Alan. So I never felt more gratified. Number one, number two, I think I have him for life, right? He's not going to use other recruiters. He's going to only want to work with us. And, and now, you know, I can call him, text him three seconds and he's going to listen to what I have to say. So to this day, it's still my philosophy, but that's 24 years of, of experience. Now I actually can tell him what's worked and what doesn't work. Totally. Now, Alan, what do you So as you asked me about the downside, should right. I tell you about the downside? Please. Okay. The downside is very clear, and COVID was that downside. When you're working with early stage companies, they're based on VC funding, and if their VCs say, so many of them were on the cusp of raising a series A, a series B. Yeah. It just went completely cold. And they're like, listen, they didn't go out of business. Most of my clients, I think 90, no, hundred percent of my clients stayed in business, which is great. They just went on freeze and that put us on freeze. So that's the downside. That is the downside. The second downside is that candidates don't always want to go to early stage companies. So it makes it much harder to pitch and get them excited about it. So your level of recruiter, your uh, your need to tell the story has to be perfecto. Mm. And you, I believe you can get candidates to, to interested, but if you're just transactional, hey, I got a job for you, yeah. and an email, early stage companies, delete, no one's going to respond. Let's double click on that, Alan, because I feel like incredibly quickly, the pendulum has swung from 2020 was the year of we need more clients, you know, and all, you know, focusing on business development and the pendulum swung back to extreme candidate, you know, driven environment where, again, it's hard to find the talent rather than to get the clients. What do you feel? And I, and I'm sure that's amplified uh, with what you do, but I think all recruiters can relate to this challenge of in getting candidate engagement because it's easier than ever before to identify the talent and even to find their contact information. But in some ways it's harder than ever before to get an actual conversation. Um, what do you think that you guys do especially well or do differently in order to, you know, it, create that candidate engagement and get people interested even uh, to, to join a company they've never heard of before? I love that question. It's one of my favorite questions because you know why our clients ask that question all the time. And if they don't ask, I make them ask that question because that's the reason why they should use us. You know, you talk about the USB, what's yeah. your USB? Like I say, anyone could go on LinkedIn. 
Forget about the job. They used to say, oh, anyone could post a job. Forget. They're smarter now, right? They have their internal recruiters. They all know. They used to work on the agency side. They all know how to go out and look for, for the candidates. They even know how to send them messages, right? So one, one of the things that I did during COVID is I hired a coach. His name is Jason Hill, and he, he suggested a book by Tom Erb. I don't know if you ever heard of him before. No. ERB. Okay, okay. good. Good to know. I'm adding so it to my a, reading list as we speak. Yeah. Tom Herb. It's kind of like the smallest book you'll ever read. It's ten dollars on you know on on Amazon, whatever you know. You can read it online, um, and it's, I think it's called like the Twelve Steps. Okay. And you know if you know about SaaS, SaaS they talk about seven steps, um, but in recruiting it used to be like you know one two steps make the call cold call then it wasn't e- you know an email marketing campaign yeah. you know we all know how many how many emails three emails right yeah mark before you kind of give up but today you have to do like 12 steps uh-huh. so and this is both this w- this will go both on the candidate side and on the client side we're talking about the, the candidate side right now so yeah we have email marketing campaigns no question about it but then it's getting the person's phone number making the phone calls but it's 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 email two emails, then a phone call, then another email. You let them know that you're going to give them a call. And eventually they see that you really want to talk to them. Mm-hmm. The reason that people don't respond, and there's only one reason that they don't respond is because they, they're they smart. Today, people are smart. They, they don't fall for this email marketing, you know, campaign crap. They just, they know it. They know it's spam. Mm-hmm. Even if it says your first name, okay, mm-hmm. we don't recruit. We're not recruiting, you know, people that just started working yesterday. So <laughs> yeah. And if you try to customize every single email, which of course it would take 45 minutes. Yeah. Right. So that's another big waste of time. So what I try to promote people is, is a system in place. It's 12 steps. Yeah. If there's someone that you really want to talk to and cause you know, there's only how many people are right for a job, you know, 10, 15 people. If they know you want to talk to them, they'll respond to it. They'll respond to you. You have to, make them feel like it's you that I really want to talk to. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, you've put that really, really well. Um, so it is much more of a campaign approach and it's a, it's a mindset shift from, okay, I'm going to call three times. I might, you know, uh, send a few emails and if I don't reach them, then I'm moving on. And I love the fact that you've said, well, that's actually 12 steps. It's a much, um, it's a, there's a lot more persistence involved. And I feel like if we uh, combine persistence with creativity, then it could really get above the noise and, and make someone feel, well, I guess these guys really are targeting me specifically. And it's not just a, you know, a mass approach. Right. Um, So what I, so I did yesterday, just funny enough, happened yesterday, one of my recruiters, you know, cause they never know what, if, a pearl of wisdom is going to come out of my mouth. She's been <laughs> recruiting for a couple of years, but she works for us now. She's only more because it's a year. I said, you know, put a video message, you know, out. And I know people do this, but I said, it, you can create the message just like an email and then insert the person's name. But because it's a video, they're going, they're not going to be as like, Oh, it's, because you can't, you can't mass a mass email video. You can't. Yeah. So obviously, hey Mark, there's this great opportunity, and she said to me, and I actually wanted to, this was on my list to ask you, do you say the name of the company? 
especially when you're in a video, because in, in the email, people don't expect it so much. But in a video, it's like we're working with a hired back venture back company with uh, hired 200 people last year and uh, they're in fintech. That's not going to get someone. You got to say the name of the company. Now, where contingency recruiters are always afraid they're going to send it out to their friends and people are going to apply and they go around the recruiter. What do you think, Mark? So that's really interesting um, because in general, my advice is say the name of the company once the candidate has engaged with you. They've, they've taken the bait, so to speak, and now you're reeling them in. Now you have to be a little bit, put your cards on the table to get, you know, secure their real interest in moving forward. I think it's a mistake for recruiters to withhold the name until like as long as possible because it doesn't set up as trust-based you know, um, it's like, I've got the information and I'm asking you all these questions, but I'm not willing to give you information in return, which I don't think inspires that, you know, that trust, um, with the candidate. What you're saying is you just, you give the company name right up front. I feel like if it's a retained search and you have the relationship with the client, then, um, then, then you're pretty safe to do that. But what's, What's your rationale? Right. So what I'm, what I'm not saying that I do it a hundred percent. I'm okay. saying that we need to, we need to a B test it and we are a B testing it because okay. think about all, I think the, the risk in someone submitting themselves versus the risk of all the people that are not going to respond uh, and all that time that you spend of not of banging your head against the wall because yeah. people, again, it's, it's customization, it's transparency, and it's, and you're honoring the fact that you're not wasting their time. Mm-hmm. And people are very crazy about their time. They don't want to talk to recruiters the way they used to want to talk to recruiters. And we have to be honest with ourselves about that, you know, and maybe you'll disagree with me, but I know the mindset of, of a typical candidate right now, their mindset is I have all these platforms, you know, there's all this AI stuff. There's plenty of ways for me to look for a job. There are real people at, at, at real recruiters at companies that I'm dealing with every day. A independent recruiter that gets paid a fee, they, they understand how that works. And they know that they may, they think that possibly I'm going to be better off without the fee because there's, you know, they've been around the block. You say, here's the company and you do it in a video. If you do it in an email, this is what exactly what I said to this person. If you do it in an email, they still can feel like this is some sort of mass email mm-hmm. and they could just say cool information. I'm going to suit myself. You're not a real person to them. I'm not screwing a real person. They see you in the face. Hi, I'm Jennifer. You know, I want to bring you John, this opportunity. They're going to be like, okay, you know what? Jennifer's, she's a real person. I'm going to call her back. And you say, please call me back. I want to tell you about the opportunity. I don't want to waste your time. I want you to take a look at it, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and I still think you can say I've been retained because yeah. that doesn't mean you've been exclusively retained. Right. I hear you. I hear you. So I, this is really interesting because what you're saying is the risk of not giving full disclosure is that you're going to lose a candidate you might have otherwise placed because they won't respond. They don't respond yeah. versus the risk of, you know, word might get out and the a few people might apply directly to the business and you're saying that, yeah. Okay. I get it now. That makes sense. Um, Yeah. It's a new world. That has shifted because we're in a digital world now and more people don't, your response rate. I'm sure you've looked at 
what your response rate is on LinkedIn and yeah. people have response rates and stuff like that. Yeah. The more transparent you are, the more real you are, you'll have a better response rate. Amazing. So video, do you know what's awesome is that what we're talking about could apply equally to recruiting and business development in the, in the sense of having this 12-step mindset, you know, using a variety of channels and being creative. So the video email is a, is a great example. Do you guys, hold, like I've seen some people, I've not tried this myself, hold up a poster with the person's name on it. So it would say Alan, like a whiteboard or something, and you've got Alan, so that when they see the video thumbnail they know conclusively it's for them. Whereas it could just be a generic marketing video from the thumbnail. I've never thought of that. So I would love to see that. I think that's a great idea. Um, we're not at that sophisticated point yet, mm -hmm. but if you ask me like where recruiting is going, that's where it's going. There's a company called easy movie <clears throat> that I just started working with. They're not designed for recruiters, but they are sales enablement, video technology company that allows people like us to create videos that are relatively, you know, sort of like an email marketing campaign for video, yeah. quickly insert, whatever. And I think that's for sure where things are going from a BD perspective. You know, we've, you've, I've heard a lot of podcasts here about video interviewing and stuff like that. And there are better people to talk to about, but I think video pitching yeah. both on the candidate side and on the, the, for the BD side is going to be huge recruiters need to start becoming comfortable with these types of situations, putting their content on video. I'm, I admit I may look comfortable, but you know, I had a, I had a glass of whiskey before this call, you know, I had to loosen, I had to loosen myself up, you know? So. It's funny. I, I think like, but here's the thing. It, it doesn't matter if it's outside your comfort zone, all the more reason to do it because it means yeah. fewer people are going to put themselves out there like that. Right. And it allows you to stand out. I don't like being on video like this, um, but it's, I understand that it's good for my business and it builds relationship with my clients and my, my audience. Um, and that's why I force myself to do it. It's not like I, you know, I've got a face for, for radio. So, uh, I think, you know, I, you, tell you, I, thought, I, thought, I think you're brilliant. Oh, I think thank the you way so you much. listen and the way you dig, dig deeply. So, I really do strive. I believe that it's people like you that, that were nervous at first that just put themselves out there that give inspiration to people like me who, who are much better one-on-one -on -one, who could talk forever one-on-one -on -one to say really smart things. But as soon as they put that video camera on, yep. they clam up. Um, you just got to go out there and do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you guys tried the audio message feature in LinkedIn for like leaving a voicemail message via LinkedIn? Actually, no. Tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, give it a try because it's um, it only works on mobile. So, but you could leave. It's basically like leaving a voicemail message, but it drops an audio file in the person's, um, you know, DM feed on LinkedIn. So you can do it pretty oh, quickly. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it leaves it in the feed. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, it's, yeah. Go ahead. I'm not, I have, I have a, I have like a, a belief about LinkedIn mm -hmm. that it's, it's becoming kind of very, a very spam kind of network. Yeah. Um, so I think that audio thing is something we should do more of, mm -hmm. but I also think that it's um, at the level that we're looking for, not so many people check LinkedIn the way they used to check in, check LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so we're starting to do more 
you know, email marketing directly. And then, and I should have mentioned this with the 12 steps I I meant to, but part of the 12 steps is, is linked is LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is part of it. So email, LinkedIn, voicemail. It's never, I I, 99% of the time, no one's going to pick up the call. No matter what, I don't care. In my industry, people aren't picking up calls. They're just not. I don't pick up calls. I hate when people call me. And then here I am telling people to call people. If I don't recognize the number, I'm just not mm-hmm. picking up the call. And 99, no one's calling me to say I have a job order for you. It's very rare. It's like never going to happen. You know, if they do, they'll leave a message and I'll right. call them back. Yeah. That still doesn't happen. So for me, it's the voicemail. Yeah. So I do agree with the audio, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be the thing that's going to get people to call you back. It's going to be the whole package of them knowing that you want to reach right. them out. So that's interesting. Ways. So, when so you, I'm glad I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this audio thing, but it's going to be one of my steps. Exactly. Yeah. It's it. There is no one thing that is like the silver bullet that is going to get everyone to reply back. It's the combined effect of that multi-touch, multi-channel campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're the first person I think I've heard say this where you're calling not because you expect them to pick up because you want them to hear your voice and it reinforces the overall uh, impression that you really want to speak to them. Yep. And I'll tell you what makes that so unique too and why I'm now able to get my recruiters to do it. I once brought in a guy to talk about co-calling, you know, typical sales trainer and all the tricks of getting someone on the phone. And I literally never, I literally, if, if people had like barf buckets in front of them, they'd be barfing all over themselves. <laughs> they, they hated it. They, the interview was so, the, the feedback was so negative. Oh dear. Because, you know, again, may, my people are millennials. They, mm-hmm. they're, they're good writers. They like to email. That's how they're social selling. Yeah. And the idea of picking up the phone was no way. But when I tell them that they're not going to pick up the phone, they're just going to hear your voice. Right. Mm. And then they're much more comfortable hmm. and they, and they, it will show them that they're not going to. So like, I'm just going to give them a voicemail. I learned this from Tom Herb and he also says to call people early in the morning. Brilliant. Right. 530 AM. Oh, right, fine. Whatever. But you know, like early in the morning before they, before they, before they get to their desk, because I don't check my voicemail during the day, but I do check it in the morning when I you know get to my desk. People come, they have their coffee, they'll get their emails, checking their voicemail. And they're like, hey, listen, so I'm not going to pick, I know you're not going to pick up the call anyways. It's early in the morning, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to let you know, I'm thinking about you. I sent you an email yesterday. Um, You know, I'm going to send you another email. I'd like you to respond. I don't want to keep, you know, I want to show you that I want to reach you professional persistence, stuff like that. I have great candidates for you or whatever it may be. Yes. All right. So listen, Alan, uh, shout out to Alexis. This tip is for you because I've got um, in my coaching group, Alan, I've got people ranging from sort of, I'm going to want to say 20, you know, mid late twenties to uh, early sixties. So there's like a whole range of ages here. And um, one of my clients is, you know, prefers that social selling uh, for both clients and candidates. And uh, this little shift in the way you perceive the the call, I think could really help um, to, to frame it. Good, differently. Yeah. Um, but what about, and it's, by the way, the yeah. other tip I'm going to do, because yeah. you know, I think number one that people say is what's your USP when, when, when clients ask you, how are you different than everybody else? Yeah. Use this, like 
if you say we have a 12 step process, well, we don't give up. We show our candidates mm-hmm. that we don't give up. And the difference between us and maybe your recruiters, and again, your recruiters are great, you know, and, but A is our niche. We understand your business yeah. in the industry focus or the functional focus. Mm-hmm. So, but B, we also know who the people are that are going to be right for the job. And they, they know who we are. So our name is recognized. Mm-hmm. So it already gives us a, a chance they're going to call us back. Mm-hmm. But then if we show them that we're also persistent, we want to speak to them, all that together is going to combine with them responding to us. And that's mm-hmm. ultimately the game. The game is responding. Once I give this candidate to you, yeah, you're right. You could probably handle it from there. But getting to that point, it's really hard. And we got that. I love it. And Alan, in terms of the USP, I feel like you should brand or or name that process, you know, your 12-step process. Give it uh, a name like, you know, the AC Lion something or rather, right? And that way it's proprietary to you. You could even put a TM on it. And that's part of your intellectual property and your sort of trade secrets that you bring uh, to bear on behalf of your clients that you have this proven, you know, 12 or however many steps you want in their system for um, engaging with top talent and bringing people to the table who nobody else is going to be able to, to, uh, to get. Um, Love it. Thank yeah. you for that. The, yeah. the, uh, the AC line steps. Exactly. Exactly. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. You said something, they, Candidates don't want to talk to recruiters the way they used to. Could you elaborate on what you mean by that? Sure. I mean, I think they assume that everything is very transactional right now. Mm-hmm. I think today's look, there's so much information and data coming at people. Yeah. I can't even keep up with my WhatsApp, Telegram, text messages, emails from multiple. I have like 15 email accounts. So Facebook, LinkedIn, I mean, you know, Instagram, TikTok, right? So I don't, it's not that I think people are saying I won't talk to this person, but they're getting so many messages. So A, it's the the amount of data that's coming at people. B, people are much more, um, what's the word like, um, you know, skeptical. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Guarded. Skeptical. 
guarded. Mm-hmm. But no, there was another word that I wasn't, but it doesn't matter. And um, so they've had bad ex- You always hear it. Oh, mm-hmm. I've had such bad experiences with recruiters. So, mm-hmm. oh, wow, you're the best. So they are, immediately expect that they're going to try to like sell them on that one opportunity, mm-hmm. which is another thing that I try to coach my recruiters. And it's another A-B testing thing, which is, some people say lead with a specific opportunity, you know, because it looks like you have a specific opportunity for one person, but I'm much more of a fan of, I want to be your eyes and ears on the railroad track. This is what I do. I place SaaS sellers. You're a SaaS seller. I'm connected to lots of companies. I understand how things can move up in a career. Let's set up a 15 minute call at some point at your convenience. Then all of a sudden it's like, you should know me because I'm someone that can help you in your career at some point. That to me is again, consultative. You have to imagine the mindset of that person. So yeah, they don't want to talk to me. You have to have a lot of grit or a big wall to to understand that, but also understand that once they do, they'll be yours forever. Mm -hmm. So how do you put yourself in that mindset that they're guarded, that they have a lot of data come to that they're very busy and don't take it personally and try to get them on the call because you know they're going to be yours afterwards. Absolutely. I, I love it. And do you always do it that way or you mix, you use a mixture of both approaches, Alan, in your business? Yeah, we were a big fan of using both approaches. Yeah. You know, I wish I had a, a chief data analyst or a CTO at my company because they could be show me what works and what doesn't work all the time. But my gut feeling is we got to mix it up all the time and then just see how, what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. No, that, that's, that makes total sense. Um, Tell me like you've been doing this a long time and you've been through all the economic cycles, 2001, 2008 COVID. I actually launched my business in 2001, September, 2001. Um, Wow. And what? Yeah, well, September 1st, and wow. uh, and then within two weeks, the whole world was different. And, um, you know, that was a that was a just a crazy uh, time. So you were there as well during that time. Then 2008, I almost went under. That was not fun. And then just recently, we've had this global pandemic. You know, from your perspective, what... Where's the recruitment industry going from here? Okay, so for the past couple of years, I've been talking about the disruption of recruiters. You know, we we work with early stage companies that disrupt industries in general. That's all they do, right? Whether it's the brokers or uh, matchmakers or uh, industry, whatever industry that there is a broker, accountants, law firms, we have the platform that disrupts that, right? And we place people in recruitment platforms that disrupt recruiters. I've been on panels where people have said the recruiters are going to die. So I pride myself on always looking and, and not only looking, but I've been investing in early stage HR, you know, recruitment technology companies because I want to hedge and I want to merge technology with the recruitment industry. So if you ask me like a year ago, do I think recruiting is going to be around for a long time? I'd say, Yes, but it has to be combined with technology. And I don't believe that we're going to be able to charge the same fees that we that we can. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in retain recruiting needing to be disrupted and will be disrupted. So I look at where there's white space. I think the contingency marketplace has already been disrupted way before COVID, way before COVID. 
and companies understand the math of if they can hire internal recruiters, it's better to go pay someone, you know, 150,000 maybe or 130,000 and and take a really good person from an agency as opposed to where they used to take the C players, right? Okay. So I lost a C player. They went internal. They get, you know, they didn't really understand how much money they can make, but now they're getting a, a plus even a, no, a minus players for sure, which are your really top billers, not your top, top, but your second tier top. And I think what COVID did is it accelerated that. Okay. Mm. COVID accelerated because people realized that they can't be, they, they can't be spending the money. Whenever there's a downturn, whenever the money is tight, they look at the fees. The first thing they look at. Yeah. So they looked at the fees and they said, we got to hire more recruiters from agencies. They found the weakness in the agency models because we were having a hard time and they picked off some great people. Mm-hmm. I think the recruit, the agencies have lost many, many more people than they want to admit that they're mm-hmm. willing to, to lose. I think companies smartened up and they paid money a lot more money than they ever would have paid for an internal recruiter. So recruiter recruiting our industry is definitely moving more towards building internal agencies within companies. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but I definitely, I mean, in fact, they're even buying recruiting firms now. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really smart. It's a great exit strategy for, for, for owners. What I do believe, and I, COVID taught me this because I believed that we were going to be disrupted. But now that I saw that it went completely dead to we're busy again, like we've never been busy before, <laughs> it just proved me slightly wrong, right? Because they are willing to pay fees still. Yes. Right. So you have to sit back and ask yourself, why are they willing to pay fees when they have their own internal teams? Right. And the answer is very, very simple it's niche, it's function. It's um, them not being able to recruit enough recruiters. So they're all really, really busy. Um, so you have to find the companies that are busy. You have to prove to them that you, that you are smart, that you know what you're doing, that you're the niche person, and then they'll pay you the fees. Right. And you got to be creative with your models, hundred percent creativity with your business models. I know I've heard that on your podcast before, but if you're just going to be a one trick pony, I'm not sure you're going to be around. I think you could survive the next year or two, but there will be another downturn and you need to be fully prepared with multiple business models. And if you can't do that, then you need to either merge with another company that can or partner with other companies that do and offer that to your clients. Cause people, recruiters are afraid to use new business models because either the recruiters feel like they're not going to make money or they're still willing to pay their fees. So Alan, that's where we're at right now. All right. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Alan, can you elaborate what you mean by alternative business models? Sure. So I think like providing like um, list of, of candidates that are pre-vetted, interested in the company, ready to be interviewed, which we both know is the hardest part of one of the hardest parts of recruiting. We don't want to give that away for nothing. Mm-hmm. We're afraid to do that. But we started doing that during COVID. You know, and we came up, we, we sat for hours. I mean, we really spent back and forth, debated it, thought, you know, like you wouldn't believe it. Um, and we came up with a model, whatever it is, depending on the position, the level of position, here's a, here's a, a dollar amount for X number of candidates that we're going to provide for you. So let's say it's $10,000 for six qualified candidates. 
at, a, at under 150k. Mm-hmm. Over 150k, it's going to be more like 15,000 for sex. You want three more, it's going to be another X couple thousand dollars. And what that does is it allows you to focus on on sourcing and get that 12 step process down. You're guaranteed cash, right? Which is great. And then you move on to the next one, the next one. And if they get placed, great. If they don't get placed. That's okay too, because you provided them the information that they need. Okay, interesting. So is that that's more of a flat fee model per? Um, yeah, you know, it's a flat per project fee. for exactly. a specific uh, piece of the recruiting um, process. Yeah, and our philosophy, and it kind of goes back to my candidate philosophy before about how you're going to lose more people by not providing the name of the company than if you didn't, it's the same thing as we understand you don't use recruiters. So we're not a recruiter. We are a, I don't, I'm never going to use a sourcing company. We will provide you with, um, with qualified candidates. We're using our expertise to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, RPO, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be there for you. We can do more steps Mm -hmm. and you can pass for those steps. So if you don't want to pay us for those extra steps, pay us for the first five or six steps. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll build a relationship with you. And then you're going to give us those, those harder to fill roles, the ones that you need us there the whole way through. Mm, interesting. Okay. Awesome. Any other examples, Alan, of how you might um, disrupt or approach this business differently? Yeah, so we're doing a lot with diversity right now. Mm. Um, a number of firms are too. And the thing I've learned about myself is I can't build technology. I thought I could. I tried to build my own ATS system back in 2001. But, uh, you know, you, you just have to put millions of dollars into it. So what I'm doing is, and especially I'm doing this in Israel, is I'm finding a group of engineers that have a great product and I'm bringing the business side to the product. I make a great product manager. So I hooked up with a, a company that uh, is developing a d- diversity technology for sourcing based on the idea that um, you can't use Boolean searches. People don't put their skills down if they're maybe they come from a different kind of background. You can't mm. search African-American on LinkedIn. It's just you can't do that. Right. And what's also it's it's illegal. It's discriminatory to actually search and look for for pictures of people that might be African-American or women. That's actually illegal and discriminatory. And Mm. one day very soon, it's going to start coming back to that balance where all of a sudden white males are going to be a minority. Or what about eight people who are older or people come from certain religious or ethnic backgrounds, even political views. I'm a big believer in, in diversity of thought. True diversity is, is all diversity. So this when you search on this technology, you do not see pictures. The, the machine gives you the answers and you are picking the people without any unconscious bias because it removes all ideas of what the ethnicity would be or the minority. And you, once you press approve, it's recorded that, that you approve that person. So if you then don't select that person to interview, then it's something that you can go back and audit. So we send that full audit report to the company and they saw how we actually recruited the people. And then if they end up hiring, let's just say they end up hiring a white male for the role, but they interviewed six females, four African-Americans, two disabled people, whatever it may be, then there was a reason that that happened potentially. 
If well, that makes sense. So, Alan, this, is this technology available now, or this is something you're working? Yeah, on? it's available. No, no, no. It's uh, we've been working with them for about a year, and we're, our model is ridiculously low for diversity. We're kind of giving it away for free. Um, it's not free. It's five thousand dollars. But right. for five thousand dollars, you get um, you get five five candidates, five diversity candidates for five thousand dollars. Very wow. simple. Wow. That's and in incredible. all our emails, we talk about diversity. And when people don't respond, we say, are you, are you not interested in diversity and hiring for diversity <laughs> candidates? We literally say that. And people are like, oh, I'm interested. <laughs> uh, hilarious. So, um, we'll, I mean, we can include a link to this um, in, the, in the show notes, Alan. But, like, is this your proprietary technology? Or no, it's you- not. So we really have to do, like, AC Lion, you know, just come to us yeah. and, you know, because they, they've allowed us to white label it, ah, which, okay. is, which is really great. The deal yeah. that we have with this company is that they go after Fortune 500 companies, yeah. Fortune 1000 companies, and that's never been our thing. Right. And we go after early stage. Got um, it. And an interesting, it's not a statistic, but it's just more of a knowledge. Anything under 100, anything under 100 people, they're really not interested in diversity, in my opinion. They say they are, but they're going to have to find whoever they can find, you know? Yeah. Once you get past 100, even 200 between, so we specialize in the diversity side between two and 400 people. They okay. still don't have like someone who's in charge of diversity. It's really important to them. And now they can afford, because the big misnomer about diversity is you're not getting everything you want plus diversity, right? You're going to get something, something very different. Yes. But you're going to get something better and more creative and, you know, and people don't get that. They say they want diversity, but they really don't when it comes down to it, unless you're giving them everything they want. They're not biased. They're not just, they, they are not biased company. They just, yeah. they're looking out for their business. And I need to try to educate them that you are looking out for your business by hiring someone that may not have two years from Bain or went to Harvard, you know, yeah. but maybe they were the captain of their softball team or whatever it may be, or, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I get that, totally. One more thing I wanted to ask you, Alan, and by the way, before I do, we should give a shout out to David Bernstein because he was the one that uh, connected That's us. That's right. Uh, so thanks, David, for making the introduction. Thank I'm, you, David. I'm really glad you did. Um, you've been managing people and managing, building teams and, and managing recruiters for you know, over 20 years, how has that changed over time in terms of how you manage sales teams, recruiting teams, and that sort of thing? So I've learned so much from the people that I've, that I've hired and they've taught me actually to be a better manager. What I thought worked, you know, that I stuck to certain principles. I think they've taught me. So again, shout out to my, 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 my millennial partners out there who, for example, we started having people work from home way before COVID and they thought it was important. They awesome. wanted to give people, you know, a lot more vacation time because they felt that was important. Yes. Um, we just started paying people base salaries versus draws, which I was a big fan of draws. And they were convincing me that you got to pay people base salaries. Yes. It's, a, it's a new, new way of thinking because they didn't feel like we were investing in them with a yeah. draw. I'm like, but we're paying them a draw. Like, no, you got to pay them a base salary, just like everybody else in the world gets paid. Yeah. And, and I learned from them and we're doing that now. And uh, that was something we worked on during COVID. So 
it's about listening and about empowering and about being transparent. Um, but truly tra- not just saying that you're transparent, but really letting them know what's going on. You know, if we're not doing well, here's what's happening and being real with them. And they appreciate that. Mm, absolutely. Uh, that, that all makes total sense. It's, it's interesting because um, I've got clients in the UK and Europe and also in, uh, you know, Asia Pacific and, and the United States. And um, vacation time in Europe is way more like just the normal statutory, like rec- legal requirement uh, for vacation time is way more than in Canada and the United States. And yet, you know, and I've not looked at the, you know, pro- but I, I'm guessing that if you looked at the productivity of a recruiter in, you know, in the UK versus a productivity uh, recruiter in the US, that they're comparable. So, you know, is someone, is restricting someone's, like saying you can only have two weeks vacation, do you really get more output from that person? I would argue probably not. What's your thoughts on that? We, we actually did a full year research study again, oh. pre-COVID about this. And but that research study was really asking all our, you know, recruitment, you know, HR people within their own companies, what their philosophy is. Yeah. And it was interesting because we, we, there was a sense that unlimited vacation was where all our tech companies were moving towards. And what we discovered is that, um, it's actually not true that people have tried unlimited vacations and they feel that it backfires on people because they feel that they can't take time right. off all the time. Yeah. So I think it's important to give people set vacations. Yeah. At the same time, you have to expand that. I think, you know, the whole, everything should be like calling in sick, that kind of thing. It should be like, so something like three weeks is nice, um, at least three weeks, but then, you know, Friday's off. And the other thing is just do your job, you know what I mean? And, you know, earn vacations. So we have like rewards. You can earn a vacation day for certain things that you do and stuff like that. And if you're at the, at the end of your vacation days, you know, we can talk about it. And then what we created was based on, it's all about a path. Recruiters don't create a path for, for people. That's the number one reason that people leave recruiting firms right. is because they're, they don't understand the path. So the other thing we worked on in COVID is, and we have recruiting associates, coordinators, recruiting associates, uh, ex- recruiters, executive recruiters, senior executive recruiter, associates, director, director. And we're a relatively small company, but within that comes vacation days, more vacation days and more flexibility and uh, things like that. So we can show people that as you move up, there's you get certain benefits. Love it. Well, look, that could be part two of our conversation, Alan, because I think that's a whole interesting thing to talk about is actually how do you grow and scale a recruiting firm? And we didn't get a chance to cover that today. So hopefully we can, we can go another round. You can teach me how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk. uh, Alan, just before you go, can I ask one more question? Because I'm not going anywhere. All right. It came up at the beginning and I forgot to circle back to this life work balance thing and living in Israel and, Uh, you know, so could you expand on why that was so important to you and how it's actually worked out? So my wife and I always wanted to do it. We were living in Long Beach, New York, right on the, right on the beach. I was a big surfer. I had a great life. Absolutely loved it. Took a 55 minute commute on the train to New York city every day. So I had the best of both worlds. Um, but it was something I always wanted to do. I would travel to Israel back and forth like at least five or six times a year. But living there was just something that we wanted to do. There also happens to be like a major tech scene here. Like it's like the Silicon Valley of the world. And I felt that I would have an ability to kind of be the face 
of my company in Israel and help international companies come to the U.S., which is something we always did. But by being there, by being where the engineering teams are, would be a big advantage for AC Lion. So in a way, I thought that was my spin, not my spin, but my way of rationalizing to my company why I'm leaving. Because I think I felt that people would say, wow, the CEO is leaving, the company's falling apart, like what's going on? So while we told our friends and family we were moving, I still had not told my company. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was quitting. It was like really traumatic. I had only quit once in my life and that's how it felt like again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I did was I empowered a few people. I I elevated them to partnership. I gave them percentages of the business. I did all that before I even made that announcement. So along that announcement came empowering of other people that were already empowered, but now they were really given full responsibilities to run the day to day. And I was going to be the person that would be bringing in the business and, um, and really doing, doing thought leadership, stuff like that. So that went over pretty well. And I also said, I'm trying it out for a year, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I came back once every uh, five weeks, I came back for 10 days. Great. So I kind of lived both worlds and it was really amazing. Um, and it worked. And, and the other thing we did is we got, uh, got everybody laptops. And because I was, even though we had people working from home before, they were in a way second-class citizens. You know, it was always like the New York office. That's where we had the food. That's where we had the birthday parties. That's where we had all the, all the events. And the other people kind of felt like, what about us? And as the CEO, all of a sudden, I felt how they felt. So we made sure everybody got laptops. Everything was on the cloud. We spent a significant amount of money when COVID came. Working from home was, and I also put in work from home policies beforehand too. Awesome. So it was the fact that I moved actually cultivated that. And now all of a sudden now that we're in COVID, it's like no big deal that I'm in Israel. And it's not a big deal that I'm not flying back and forth either because nobody cares about meeting anybody anymore if everything's on Zoom. So it worked out nicely for me. Once again, you were two years ahead of the curve there, Alan. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Well, listen, thanks for for – uh, bookending that story because uh, I think that is that is a paradigm shift that many other people are starting to wake up to is the fact that you don't have to be necessarily in New York or London or LA or whatever to um, to run your business or or to serve your clients. So that could be another interesting topic for another day. But uh, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Hey, Mark, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Good luck with everything. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.